Hi, my name is Jonathan Peza, and welcome to the weekly podcast, Pulp, where we take an adventure one story at a time through the cultural phenomenon of pulp fiction. You know, today franchises like Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, Star Wars, and the DC and Marvel universes not only take in billions of dollars a year in revenue, but are considered some of the highest achievements in creative storytelling. But these genres weren't always given that kind of glowing respect. In fact, science fiction, horror, fantasy, and hero tales were largely looked down upon by mainstream publishers and Hollywood as silly, exploitative, and just too lowbrow for mass consumption. And so, for generations, these stories were forced to live in the shadows. Written by a literary underground of rebels, misfits, and dreamers who often never achieved monetary or mainstream success. But let's take a step back. Other than a classic Tarantino flick featuring John Travolta doing the twist and Samuel L. Jackson extolling the deliciousness of Big Kahuna Burger, what exactly is Pulp Fiction? Between 1880 and 1955, mainstream literary publishing became big business. Literacy among low and middle classes skyrocketed in the United States, and with the help of a quickly growing public library system, books naturally became the central form of delivering new ideas directly to the masses. But with all big business, the gatekeepers, the publishers, and the industry as a whole kept a tight hold on the types of stories that were considered for print. People were hungry for entertainment, especially stories that preyed on our baser instincts. Lust, fear, adventure, danger. There was a need, and if the highbrow publishers weren't willing to feed it, someone else would. Enter the Pulps. 120-page monthly compilations of short stories, novellas, and full-length novels presented in two-column spreads on the cheap paper from which they draw their name. These small 7 by 10 inch paperbacks sold for between 10 and 25 cents and were produced in the millions. Titles like Argosy, Amazing Stories, Weird Tales, Black Mask, Thrilling Detective, and Breezy sold like hotcakes. But as their success grew, something else happened. These publications, in their need for content, became an incubator for a genre storytelling revolution. Modern masters like Ray Bradbury, Robert Block, Robert E. Howard, C.L. Moore, and this episode's author, Mary Elizabeth Councilman, all built their craft and forwarded the literary universe from within the pages of the pulps. There's no denying that people love to be scared, and there's no greater delight than being terrified from within the safe confines of a book. Weird Tales, perhaps more than any other publication in history, is responsible for ushering in the modern horror genre. Published consistently from 1922 through 1954, Weird Tales focused on stories defined by their macabre, odd, and terrifying nature. Today's story, The Monkey Spoons, by Elizabeth Councilman, was first published in the May 1950 issue and is a quintessential example of the indelible mark Weird Tales left on the genre. If you've watched a horror film in your lifetime, it's likely you've come across a cursed item or two. The Monkey Spoons is an early example of not only the cursed item, but the death curse plot device in delightfully creepy action. Elizabeth contributed more than 15 stories to Weird Tales over her career, and unlike many of her stoic contemporaries, her tales are marked by a unique blend of humorous irony, wonder, and of course, terror. 
So sit back, turn out the lights, and let me tell you a story. The little shop seemed to have taken the musty, worm-eaten quality of furniture and relics it offered for sale. There was an all-pervasive odor of mildew and decaying wood. Dust motes whirled in a shaft of sunlight as the street door opened, with a hushed tinkle of a bell above the sedate gold letters, Jonathan Spruill Antiques. The three young people who entered arm-in-arm arm looked as out of place in such a shop as three children at a board meeting. The girl, a vivacious brunette with a large diamond solitaire on her left hand, linked the two men together. One a tall, easygoing Norse blonde, and the other small, wiry, and dark, with sensitive features that resembled those of the girl. They stood for a moment laughing and chattering together, but in lowered tones somewhat subdued by the atmosphere of the old shop. No, no, not three rings, Bob. Rings are so trite, the girl was protesting. What we want is something unusual, eh, Alan? Something distinctive to link us three together always, like the three musketeers, and remind us of our underlying... <gasps> she broke off with a stifled gasp as a stooped, wrinkled gnome of a man, a hunchback, scuttled out of the shadowy recesses at the rear of the place. There was something spider-like about his appearance until he smiled. Large, luminous brown eyes beamed on each of them in turn. I overheard, he murmured in a mellow, friendly voice that matched his eyes. You are looking for some little memento. His eyes drifted keenly to the girl. Soon is your wedding day, yes, he hazarded. And you and your brother and your fiancé wish to buy some antique curio in triplicate as a bond of love and remembrance. The trio glanced at one another, jaws dropping. Why, yes, the girl laughed. You must be psychic. Observation, merely observation and deduction, the old proprietor chuckled pleasantly. I have very little trade here, worse luck and much time to meditate. Now, what do you have in mind? Three identical snuff boxes? Perhaps 17th century? Or what about lockets? Renaissance Italian, with your pictures in each? I have some that fold open in three sections. Two of them could be worn as watch fobs, of course. He smiled at the two utterly unlike but congenial young men. They grinned back at him, wandering curiously among the cluttered displays of crow's nest tables, hammered brass fire dogs, old spinning wheels, and a hundred other reminders of generations past. Idly, they wandered over to a showcase of antique silverware, ornate gold and silver sugar shells, pickle forks with tiny demons on the handle, little salt spoons, and graceful, crisp-shaped butter knives. The girl strolled away by herself, poking about with quiet fascination. Presently, her eyes fell on a small, worn, black velvet case pushed halfway out of sight on a shelf. She leaned to open it and called out eagerly, Look! Oh, Alan! Bob! Look! I found some monkey spoons! She beckoned to her brother and fiancé, then smiled across the shop at the old proprietor, whose sudden look of agitation she failed to notice. These are monkey spoons, aren't they, Mr. Spruill? I've never seen any with a drinking monkey perched on the knob. It's always something stylized, a fawn or a skull. These must be very old. The two men moved to her side, fondly amused by her excitement. The blonde one, Bob, looked at the dark one, Alan, and spread his hands humorously. What on earth, he drawled, are monkey spoons. 
Alan, if we're going to open that antique shop of ours with my backing and Marsh's and your experience, you'll have to brief me on these. The brother and sister started explaining, both at once interrupting each other. They gave up laughing. Then suddenly Mr. Spruill, stepping forward, edging unobtrusively between the three young people in the black velvet box. Monkey spoons, he explained diffidently, were presented by the old Dutch patroons to honor guests and relatives as late as the 17th century. They were mementos of some occasion, a funeral most often, as you can see from these very fine specimens. Skillfully, he steered the trio away to another showcase, shutting the black velvet box behind him with a furtive gesture. These, he pointed out one set of five, are typical. Note the wide, shallow, fluted bowl of a spoon, very thin silver, bearing a hammered-out picture symbolic of funerals, a man on a horseback delivering the invitations with a churchyard in the background. These bear a likeness to St. Michael, weigher of souls on Judgment Day. This one has a picture of a mourning weeper over a cemetery urn. Ugh. Cheerful little trinkets, aren't they? Bob laughed, resting one hand on Alan's shoulder and sliding his other arm around his fiancé's waist. Mean to say they passed out these things at funerals like flowers at a party. Not exactly, Mr. Sproul smiled. They were hung around the rim of a punch bowl at the dude feast. Dead feast. Something like an Irishman's wake. A small silver lozenge, the seal, was always welded at the center of the handle, engraved with the name of the deceased and the dates of his birth and death. The handles are quite slender as you see, they curl backwards like the end of a violin to form the knop, on which is mounted a silver fawn or a skull or... Or a monkey, the girl asked eagerly. Why monkey spoons, Mr. Spruill? She drifted over to the black box again and picked up the spoon. I've always wondered why they're called that. That? The old dealer shrugged his humped shoulders, is an enigma among antique experts. One theory is that the monkey was simply a symbolic invitation to come and be gay at the dude feast. Eat, drink, and be merry, you know, for tomorrow. Zeeking their monkey was an old Dutch expression meaning to get drunk. <sighs> Marsh's delicate nose wrinkled in distaste. I certainly wouldn't want everybody getting soused at my funeral. They'll just have to sit around and cry soberly or they'll get no monkey spoons from me. Remember that now, Bob. She laughed and planted a kiss on her fiancé's cheek. Hush. Her brother, the more sensitive of the two men, shuddered visibly. Marcia, don't be so morbid. People shouldn't joke about. Who's morbid? The girl laughed more gaily, winking at Bob. Oh, Alan, you're a sissy. Do come and look at these darling monkey spoons over here. Those with the drinking monkey are very rare, aren't they, Mr. Spruill? There are only three of these. Her face lighted and she whirled about at a sudden idea. Oh, why don't we choose these for our keepsakes? I could have mine made into a scarf pin. Bob, yours and Alan's could be watch fobs. Or you could have them welded on silver cigarette cases. Some old Dutchman's funeral spoons. Wouldn't that just be too gruesome and clever? And, she added eagerly, we could call our antique shop the Three Spoons and people will drop by in droves just to ask us why. Bob, darling, please buy them. Her fiancé grinned at her fondly, winked at her discomforted brother, and reached for his checkbook with a light shrug. All right, all right, my precious, anything your little heart desires. But funeral spoons, he roared with amusement. What a gift from a groom to a bride. Mr. Spruill, how much are you asking for? He broke off caught by the expression on the face of the hunchbacked antique dealer. 
Mr. Sproul looked frightened. There was no mistaking that quiver about his mouth or the agitation in his kindly old eyes. I, uh, I... Wouldn't you prefer something less expensive? He blurted. Those particular spoons are almost a collector's item. Besides, he added in an oddly loud tone, they're not mine to sell, really. They're not mine. He emphasized the words queerly and glanced towards the dark rear of the shop, as though he were speaking for the benefit of some skulking eavesdropper whom they could not see. The former owner, he lowered his voice again in apology, was a Mrs. Haversham, an elderly widow. Her, her heirs have not yet been located. She, she died about a month ago, shortly after buying the set of four monkey spoons at an auction. She kept one spoon and left three of them for me to sell at a profit, merely as her agent. He emphasized sharply with another odd glance toward a particularly dark corner. She kept a fourth spoon, not wanting to part with her entire collection. She, uh, she, uh, she, she was asphyxiated in the garage, he added with apparent irrelevance. Carbon monoxide gas from her car, an, an accidental death, of course, he said quickly, again with that nervous glance to the shadows. The girl, Marcia, her fiancé, Bob, and her brother, Alan, looked at one another significantly. The old hunchback was certainly peculiar, to say the least. A borderline mental case, Bob's raised eyebrows suggested. With a glance at her fiancé's disappointed expression, he became brisk and businesslike. Well, you have a legal right to sell the spoons, though, and collect your commission, he pointed out shrewdly. How much? Ah... Uh... Five hundred dollars, Mr. Sproul murmured, then added with a manner of pleading. That's exorbitant, of course, and I can find you something much more attractive for the price. Exorbitant? You can say that again. For three little spoons? The blonde man whistled good-humoredly, but uncapped his fountain pen. Uh, that's five hundred dollars apiece, Mr. Sproul said hurriedly. For each spoon. Now... I'm sure you wouldn't care to pay so much for a, a whim. Let, let me just show you. Bob set his jaw stubbornly, giving the old dealer an oblique look. Mr. Sproul, don't you want to make a sale? Look, if you're trying to run up the price, he snapped. Just because my fiance is taken such a fancy to, he broke off, grinned abruptly, and spread his hands in rueful defeat. All right, you old pirate. Fifteen hundred it is. He smiled indulgently to the girl beside him who was shaking her head violently. If it's something you really want, darling, you shall have it. Old Mr. Sproul sighed deeply, with a tone of resignation rather than of satisfaction. The price, he said heavily, is 500 for the set, if you insist on buying it. But I must tell you, although I am sure you young people will laugh at me, or perhaps be even more intrigued by these, these devilish spoons... You see, they... Mr. Sproul gulped. They're supposed to be cursed. The two men did laugh, but the girl's face lighted up. She clapped her hands as pleased as a child with its first jack-o'-lantern. Oh, a curse! How marvelous! Why didn't you tell us before? Now I simply must have them! The old hunchback nodded and shrugged. As I predicted, 
he murmured then doggedly. The spoons are mementos of a funeral of an old Dutch patroon, Schuler von Gruten. You'll see his name on the seals, who owned and tenant-farmed about half of the Connecticut Valley in the 1600s. Mrs. Haversham had an old Dutch diary written by one of his ancestors. I was able to translate only a few pages when I called at her home, but it seems there were 13 spoons originally. Rather a significant unlucky number as the patroon was secretly murdered by friends and relatives who would inherit his estate. One by one, the story goes, he caused six guilty ones to die, exactly as he himself had died. The remaining owners of the monkey spoons became frightened finally and gave theirs away, thereby escaping his vengeance, but... But anyone who owns the spoon inherits the curse, is that it? Marcia cried delightedly. Alan, isn't it exciting? Oh, Bob, do give Mr. Sproul a check before somebody comes in and buys our haunted spoons right out from under our noses. The antique dealer looked at her and sighed. He saw the girl's brother bite his lips frowning, but the blonde young man grinned at his fiancée and wrote out a check for the three monkey spoons. Opening the black velvet box, he presented one of the spoons to Marcia with an exaggerated bow. The second he gave to Alan, holding it over his wrist like a proffered rapier. The third spoon he thrust carefully into the pocket of his tweed coat. Then, laughing at his horseplay, Marsha offered an arm to each of the two young men, and they marched out together whistling in harmony into the sunlit street. Behind them, old Mr. Sproul, although he was not a very devout Catholic, crossed himself. He ran a finger under his collar and inhaled noisily, aware all at once of the extreme stuffiness of his little shop. It was unusually close in here today, he thought almost stifling. He scurried to a window and flung it open, gulping in lungfuls of cool autumn air, as if for some reason he found it terribly hard to breathe. It was almost closing time about a week later, when the bell over his door tinkled again and two of the attractive young threesome walked into his shop. Mr. Sproul scuttled forward to meet them, beaming in recognition, but his smile faded at the sight of the grim expression on the blonde man's face and the stunned, swollen-eyed look of the pretty girl. She had been crying, the old dealer saw, and Bob was tight-lipped and cold with anger. Yes? Mr. Sproul murmured hesitantly. You were not satisfied with your purchase? An odd look of hope leaped into his eyes. You wish to return the spoons, perhaps. Of course, I shall be glad to refund your... For answer, the blonde man thrust one of the delicate monkey spoons under his nose, pointing to the tiny silver seal welded at the center of the handle. Is this your idea of a joke? He snapped. The antique dealer blinked, and putting on an old-fashioned pair of square-lens spectacles peered at the spoon. The blood ebbed slowly from his face. Ah, uh, I don't understand... He stammered. When I sold them to you, the inscription read Schuler von Gruten, born August 3rd, 1586, died June 8th, 1631. But now, now it reads Alan Fentress, born September 14th, 1924, died November 3rd, 1949. Why? He broke off. That's yesterday. A sob burst from the girl and she buried her face into her fiancé's shoulder. 
Weeping wildly, Bob glared at Mr. Sproul. Yes, he said harshly, and Alan was drowned yesterday, November 3rd, 1949. The death date engraved on that damn spoon. How the devil did you get a hold of Alan's spoon? He towered over the old cripple threateningly. You sadistic old. You took that seal off, didn't you, and welded a new one. Just to, to stir up some freak publicity and boom trade for your crumbing little shop? Why did you have to pick on Alan? Because you knew he was moody and susceptible to suggestion? Because you knew he'd brood over your little hoax not telling us? His painting wasn't going well lately, so you thought it would be a cinch to drive him to suicide. Out there on the lake yesterday, he just stopped swimming and went under. When I got his clothes from the locker room, I found this damn spoon you changed. Like a death sentence, Mr. Sproul gasped, looking first at the dead youth's angry friend, then at his grieving sister. Ah, no, no, he protested. My dear young people, you surely don't accuse me of. You're upset. Who wouldn't be? It's the curse, he said quietly. Remember, I did my best to warn you. To plant your story, you mean, the young man snarled, glaring at him furiously. He led the girl towards the door. Come on, darling. I might have known we'd get no satisfaction out of this. This cold-blooded old ghoul. But let me tell you. He threw back furiously at the antique dealer. When I locate the engraver who changed that inscription or find out how you learned Alan's birth date, I'll come back here and kill you. The door slammed with an agitated jingle of the little bell. Mr. Sproul stood for a moment wringing his hands miserably. He had liked those three light-hearted young people on sight and would not for the world have wished harm to befall on any of them. But there were forces an old cripple man could not combat. Forces older than any item in his musty little shop. Older than logic. Older than time. Oh dear heaven, the hunchback moaned. Why didn't I tell them to give those other two spoons away? Melt them down, bury them, anything. If that old diary had just told how Van Gruten had died, perhaps I could have warned them to avoid... But there were only hints. The writer never did come out and say. But that young man is intelligent. Perhaps he could come to some conclusion that I've missed. He turned and ran for the telephone directory, leafing through it hastily to find the name Fentress or Milam, the signature on the young man's check. For an hour he clung to the phone, calling every Fentress and Milam in the book. But there was no Robert Milam. Mr. Sproul tried the hotels then the funeral homes to trace the dead brother, Alan. Finally, he hung up defeated, concluding that they were all from out of town. He sat staring at the phone, then, wringing his old hands in helpless anguish of one who can only wait, wait for disaster. But the period of waiting was not long. Three days later, just at noon, the doorbell tinkled again. Mr. Sproul looked up from a six-branched candelabra he was polishing to see a disheveled figure swaying a few feet from him. It was Bob Meelum, his face drawn and covered with a stubble of beard, his eyes bloodshot and puffy from drinking. In his hand 
he held an ugly little automatic. Mr. Sproul caught his breath and stood very still. Then, despite his own fear, he burst out. Oh, my dear poor friend, the second spoon, your fiancé. The young man's mouth twisted with pain and bitterness. For reply, he flung another of the monkey spoons at the old dealer's feet. Mr. Sproul stooped to pick it up. He paled and nodded. The tiny oval seal on the handle was engraved to read, Marcia Fentress, born April 17, 1927, died November 6, 1949. At the old man's nod, Bob's eyes narrowed. He said not a word, but the ominous click of the safety catch on his gun was eloquent enough. Yet there was more pity than terror in Mr. Sproul's face. Oh. His murmur of shocked sympathy had a genuine ring. How did she? My fiancé, the young man grated bitterly, was terribly grief-stricken at her brother's death. You figured on that too, didn't you? You insane twisted. His voice broke on a sob of impotent rage. Helen and Marcia were inseparable. We three were, in fact. Marcia couldn't sleep, so last night she took a big dose of sleeping pills. While he gulped, then plunged on miserably. While she was drugged, a very large beauty pillow on her bed fell over her face. Somehow, she, it wasn't the sleeping pills. She smothered to death. The coroner called it an accident, he lashed out. But I call it murder. You murdered Alan too. I can't prove it, but I surely as hell can. With a sob, he leveled the gun at the old antique dealer's heart, his mouth working with hate and grief. At sight of his tortured young face, Mr. Sproul dabbed at his eyes, oblivious of his own danger. My poor, unfortunate young friend, he murmured pitifully. You can't believe I would cause such tragedy for a few paltry dollars. I didn't change those seals, but I cannot hope to persuade anyone as matter-of-fact as yourself to believe in, in, in the supernatural. The diary recounts that, that when each guest at Van Gruten's dude feast died, their spoons changed too. Mrs. Haversham's seal altered also. The lawyer found it later among her effects, but assumed it to be a grim jest of some house servant. Bob Neelam snorted derisively, but the murderous anger in his eyes ebbed slowly, and the gun in his hand wavered. You're insane, he said heavily. Maybe you don't even realize you changed those seals. Maybe your twisted mind really believes that silly guff about, about some old Dutchman who... His shoulders slumped all at once. He swayed, passing one hand over his bleary eyes, the gun in his other hand clattering to the floor. Suddenly, he snatched the monkey spoon and flung it down the furnace grating. Insane, he mumbled. I, I can't shoot a crazy, crippled old man in cold blood. But uh, why did you do it? He groaned, staring at the hunchback. Why, Mr. Sproul? Why? My best friend, and then my fiancé. 
I'd gladly have signed over my whole bank account to you if it was money you... Please, the antique dealer cried out in despair. You must believe me that I had no part in... I tried to phone you to warn you. Tried to figure out the manner of death so you could avoid. But they all died so differently. Mrs. Haversham asphyxiated. Your friend drowned. And your lovely fiancé. The old man's eyes widened suddenly. Ah, now I understand. It's true. It all ties together. Listen to me. Bob Meelum had turned unsteadily toward the door, but Mr. Sproul sidled after him like a small persistent crab and seized him by the arm. No, no, wait, you must listen, he gasped. The diary mentioned that Schuyler von Gruten was subject to sleeping fits, a cataleptic. His friends and relatives must have known that. But, but they, wait, he begged. Your monkey spoon, where is it? You must give it away at once. At once, the old dealer insisted excitedly. To, 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 some, to some impersonal agency. The scrap metal drive. Yes, that's, that's it. Get it out of your possession or you too will. So much hate. Such hunger for revenge hovers about them. Like a piece of metal that has been magnetized. They, 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 they can actually draw disaster upon anyone who... But at that moment, the young man jerked his arm loose and plunged out into the street, wanting only to get away from this crazy old man who had caused him such grief in a space of a few short days. Mr. Sproul pattered after him, calling excitedly for him to wait. But by the time he reached the curb, Bob Meelum had whistled down a cab and was climbing into it. The old hunchback hurried to the curb and strained to catch the address. But the young man was only telling the driver wearily, Drive around. Just drive. Anywhere, I don't care. The antique dealer's arms dropped to his side, limply in defeat. He watched the taxi speed out of sight, then turned slowly and walked slowly, thoughtfully back into his shop. The evening paper left under his door as usual carried the story. A taxi was ambling along 187th Street where wreckers were busy raising an old warehouse. Somehow the dynamite charge went off sooner than was intended, and a crumbling wall of bricks and mortar fell on the cab as it passed. The cabbie managed to dig his way out, but the single passenger, an intoxicated young man identified as one Robert Meelum of New Jersey, could not be pulled out of the wreckage for almost an hour. He was dead when frantic workmen did finally reach him. Not crushed but trapped without air in the rear seat of the taxicab. And in his pocket, the police found a peculiar-looking spoon inscribed with his name, the date of his birth, and the very date of his death. Mr. Sproul finished reading, then took off his square-lensed glasses and polished them with a hand that trembled. There was nothing, he mused philosophically. Really nothing that he could have done to save those three nice young people who had all died the same way. Fighting for breath. Smothered to death by one agency or another. Just exactly as Mrs. Haversham had died in her exhaust-filled garage. And just as, centuries ago, an old Dutch patroon, one Schuyler Van Gruten, had died. Clawing and screaming and gasping for breath in his coffin. 
awakened from one of his cataleptic trances to find that his greedy heirs had deliberately buried him alive. On the next episode of Pulp, we'll be diving headlong into the world of science fiction with Kurt Vonnegut's speculative tale, To Be or Not To Be. But that's not all. We'll be bringing you a brand new story every week, so make sure to subscribe today on the platform of your choice, leave us a rating or review, and follow the podcast on Twitter at PulpThePodcast. I'm Jonathan Pezza, your host, and thank you for listening. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.